Revelation 21. Just before we read that, let me uh, recap our series so far. Uh, We come to uh, the last truth in our five-part series entitled New in Christ. And it's, it's been our goal uh, together throughout this series to think deeply about some of the rich blessings that we have as Christians. Blessings which are only ours because God, by his spirit, has united us to his son through faith. And if you're a Christian this morning, someone who has turned away from your sin and trusted in Jesus alone as your savior, then the Bible says that you are in Christ. The New Testament always says, in Christ, in him, in Jesus. That is a description of you as a follower of Jesus. And because you're in Christ, all that is yours becomes his, and all that is his becomes yours. It's the great transaction of the gospel, the gospel swap. Therefore, you have a new identity in Christ. And that was week one. You have a new spirit in Christ. You have a new family in Christ. You have a new purpose in Christ. And you have a new future in Christ. And that fifth and final truth is where we're going to finish our series today by looking at this new future in Christ. Now, if you were to look at popular Christian impressions about this new future, I would say you would be forgiven to think that heaven is a really boring place. Some of you are a bit shocked by that, but the reason I say that is because if you look at art in particular, heaven, eternal life, our future, consists solely and simply of eternally floating on a cloud, stringing a harp forever. It's in art, it's in song, it's even in some Christian books. But our understanding of heaven is not built by artistic impressions, but it's built on the written words of the living God in the Bible. So for that reason, our time today, as is the case every Sunday, is going to be centered on the reading and preaching of the Bible. Specifically, we want to focus our attention on Revelation chapter 21 because it describes this new future in in glorious detail. And this is the new future awaiting those who are in Christ. So let's read uh, together in Revelation 21. John says... Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. And they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. God will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this inheritance, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But as for the cowardly, 
the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. And we'll finish our reading of God's word there. The opening word of verse 1, the word len, provides a link to what has come before. So at the end of chapter 20, John writes um, what he sees about the final judgment before the great white throne. He saw how the books were opened and described how those whose names were not found in the book of life were cast away, thrown into the lake of fire. And then now in chapter 21, John sees what awaits those whose names are written in the book of life. What awaits Christians after Jesus returns and after the final judgment. Now it's really important to notice the order here. Because when we often think of that word heaven, I think we sometimes get confused. Because we think about the place where, where, where Christians go when they die now as heaven. John, however, is describing what happens after the resurrection, after Jesus comes, after the great judgment, which he describes in verse 1 as the new heaven and the new earth. Now, this is a very simplistic diagram I've made behind me from the second coming. There's many, many things missing and many interpretations missing. But this is, this is the gist of it. You see, the Bible doesn't say much about that state where Christians go when they die. It simply says that the Christian soul goes to be with Christ, which is better by far. On the other hand, it speaks a lot about the new heaven and the new earth. And that's what I mean today when we're considering our new future, heaven. We're thinking about what happened after Jesus will come and what will happen after the final judgment. That's what we mean today by the word heaven. The future awaiting those who are in Christ after Jesus comes again. And to help us understand John's teaching here, I want us to ask three questions of this passage. Three simple questions of this passage to help us understand and uh, in God's help to, to apply this to our lives. Question number one, what will heaven be like? What will heaven be like? And just a footnote here, this will be most of our time today, so don't worry about that. We're going to spend most of our time looking at what will heaven be like. Well, in verses 1 to 8, the passage we've read, John describes what he saw and what he heard about the new heaven and the new earth. And most of his description comes in the opening four verses, where he describes heaven in, in positive terms and also in negative terms. He says what will be there and what won't be there. And I think we can summarize John's teaching about heaven, the new heaven and the earth, in six truths. Six truths which, open, which, which provide an answer to our opening question. Truth number one, heaven will be a physical place. Heaven will be a physical place. John writes in verse one, have a look with me. I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. And if you're familiar even a little bit with the Bible, that combination of heaven and earth should bring our minds immediately back to the opening verse of the Bible. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, 
in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I would suggest to you that just as the heavens and the earth are physical at the beginning of the Bible, so here at the end of the Bible, the new heaven and the new earth are also physical. Revelation 21 is the fulfillment of God's promise to, to Isaiah back in Isaiah 65. Listen to a few verses from that, that, that promise, Isaiah 65, which is now fulfilled in Revelation 21, should be on the screen behind me, and they describe heaven as a physical place. Isaiah 65, For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former things shall not be remembered or come into mind. And then God says, verse 21, They shall build houses and inhabit them, They shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. Verse 25, the wolf and the lamb, physical animals, shall graze together. The lion shall eat straw like the ox, and dust shall be the serpent's food. Do you notice how physical, how tangible the language is in Isaiah 65? It suggests to us that heaven truly is a physical place. So far from spending eternity on a cloud, stringing a harp, God's people will spend eternity in a new earth because heaven will be a physical place. We don't know for certain what life in heaven will, uh, will look like in this physical place. So, so many questions remain unanswered. We can't be certain if there will be um, a mountain to hike in heaven. We can't be certain whether we are able to play sports there. Or we even can't be certain, sad to me, if we can enjoy good coffee shops in heaven. (laughs) But I think it's possible that we will. I think this because of our second truth. Heaven will be a renewed place. John writes in verse 1, I saw a new heaven and a new earth. And that word new in the original means new in quality, not in time. It suggests that the new heaven and the new earth won't be something created out of nothing, something totally unfamiliar to our current existence. Rather, it will be our world purified and perfected. Creation will be set free from its bondage to corruption. It will be restored to its former glory. And in fact, it will be beautified. That's why one famous writer says, heaven will be better than Eden. Think about the resurrected body of Jesus for a moment. It wasn't a brand new body. It wasn't completely different from from the one uh, that, that Jesus had before his death. Rather, it was the same body glorified. And that's how Jesus' disciples were able to recognize him. He wasn't some random stranger who, who, who claims that he's, he's been raised from the dead. Rather, he is Jesus. He looked the same, but he is now alive. He was dead, but he is alive now forevermore. And in the same way, I think that heaven will be a renewal of the good creation described in Genesis chapter 1. It will be better than the Garden of Eden. So yes, I think we will be able to safely praise our creator at the top of Mount Everest. I think we'll be able to play sports without any aches or pains. I even think we will maybe enjoy a good cappuccino without sour milk. And I have to say, although not everyone agrees with this understanding, 
everyone agrees with the basic truth that heaven will be a perfect place because the former way of life will cease to exist. Truth number three, have to check there. Heaven will be a safe place. Heaven will be a safe place. Look at what John says at the end of verse one. And the sea was no more. So just a moment ago, we had all the mountain lovers saying, Amen, heaven, here we come. Now all the beach lovers saying, Oh, (laughs) no more sea? No more oceans? Well, there are some people who, who think that will be the case. In fact, one solid, I have to say solid, popular preacher thinks that life in heaven will be totally different than that of ours now. And he says, quote, believers' glorified bodies will not require water. Others, Lou, disagree. I also don't take a literal understanding of this phrase here. You see, the book of Revelation is mostly apocalyptic literature. So it contains many symbols, many images which which describe and proclaim a particular truth to us. And I think that's the case here with the sea. Now, you may be asking, Alex, why do you take the first half of that sentence literally and the second half of that sentence symbolically? Well, simply put, because the first half is a repeated phrase throughout the Bible, new heaven and new earth, Isaiah 65, Genesis 1, and the second half, to my knowledge only occurs here. So that's why I'm running with this. And you see, throughout the Bible, the sea is described as, as dangerous and deadly. It's chaotic and, and can't be controlled by man. So Revelation chapter 13, in and of itself, verse one, the beast, the terrifying beast, comes out of the sea, a place of danger, a place of chaos. Even John himself, the recorder of the Revelation, chapter one, is on the island of Patmos, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a place surrounded by rugged rocks and terrible, chaotic sea, separated from his, from his, from his uh, fellow Christians back on mainland in Asia Minor. But now, in heaven, Revelation 21, there is no more sea, no more disorder, no more danger, no more death. Heaven will be a safe place. Truth number four, heaven will be a communal place. You'll start to see there's been a lot of heavy working uh, this week in this. In verse two, John sees the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God. In other words, God designed it and God built it. And as with many things in Revelation, there are, there are many suggestions about the identity of the New Jerusalem. Some think it's a, it's a physical city, and others think the New Jerusalem is the church. And now, you may have your own interpretation, but I'm going to share mine. But I'm going to say that it's mine right now, and it may change at some point going forward. So we hold it open. With, we hold it in our hands with, 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 our, with our, um, our grip, not together. And I would lean towards the new Jerusalem here, symbolizing the church of Jesus. Because in verse 2, John describes the city as a bride. The new Jerusalem, and then he says the bride. Later in verse 9, John is invited by the angel to see the bride, the wife of the Lamb, i.e. the church of Jesus Christ. And then from verse 10 onwards until the end of the chapter, John describes the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God in many, many details. But do, do you see that there? The city, 
He wants to see the bride, sorry, in verse 9. And then he sees the city. In verse 2, we see the city, but then he says it looks like a bride. And there are many good arguments advanced for the different views, but I think for this point in particular, it's important to focus on what the views have in common. And that's the, that's the communal aspect. You see, global cities like Frankfurt are hubs of people. Many people meeting many other people. And local churches, well, they're also hubs of people. It's guessed about 100 people here today. People meeting people. Heaven then, whether it has a physical New Jerusalem or not, is a place for people. It's a place where followers of Jesus, all across the Revelation says this, from every tribe, language, people, and nation sing, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. So I would suggest then that heaven will be a communal place Because we will have many, many, many brothers and sisters from all across this world and all throughout history to gather in one place, worshipping God and the Lamb. Do you know what that means? It means that the current loneliness that you feel in this city will not exist in heaven. We're not going to be bored or lonely in heaven because heaven is a communal place. Truth number five. Heaven will be a joyous place. Verse four beautifully describes some of the blessings of heaven by by considering what won't be there. Just listen to what John writes about verse four. He says, God will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. If you're a Christian today, if you've been united to Jesus through faith, this is your future. The tears that you have experienced because of the brokenness of this sinful world will one day be wiped away by our tender Father in heaven. Tears caused by hurt, Tears caused by rejection. Tears caused by trauma. Tears will be wiped away forever. The pain that you've experienced on earth, well, that will no longer exist. The pain from work. The pain from childbearing. The pain from heartbreak. Pain will be no more because God will reverse the curse of the fall described in Genesis chapter 3. There won't be any hospitals or funerals in heaven. There won't be clinics or care homes in heaven. No need for a counseling appointment or a tissue to wipe away your tear. No criminals or, or, or criticism. No drugs or disease. No problems or persecution. Death, sin, and the effects of sin will be gone, banished, exterminated forever. Truly, heaven will be a joyous place, a happy place. It will be no more. Truth number six. Heaven will be God's eternal place, God's eternal dwelling place with his people. You see, the blessings of verse four are the result of verse three. 
In fact, verse 3 describes the greatest reward of heaven. A voice from the throne, probably that of an angel, declares in verse 3, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be with his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. This, friends, is the end of the story of the Bible. You see, right at the start of the Bible, God created Adam and Eve, and they enjoyed daily communion with God. You can read about it in Genesis chapter uh, 1, 2. At the start of Genesis chapter 3, the verbs used there kind of describe a habitual appointment between, between God and Adam and Eve. That God, uh, at some point in the day, came down and walked in the garden and talked to Adam and Eve. But their unique relationship with God was then sadly broken by their sin. And as a result of their sin, every human is born separated, apart, um, with no relationship with our creator. And yet, the Bible describes how God chose a people and dwelt among them. He rescued the Israelites from Egypt and, and dwelt with them in the tabernacle through, through the wilderness wanderings. And then in the promised land, God dwelt again with his people in the temple. The story of God dwelling with his people then continues into the New Testament. John opens his gospel account by describing how the word, Jesus, became flesh and dwelt among us, tabernacled with us. God in flesh, Emmanuel, walked where we walk and lived as we live. And then Jesus died on the cross. He was buried and was raised triumphantly three days later from the grave. And he then ascended to the right hand of God the Father. The Bible tells us that when when Jesus ascended, the Holy Spirit descended, and now he dwells, God the Holy Spirit dwells inside of everyone who trusts in Jesus as their Savior and Lord. And here now, in Revelation chapter 21, John sees the dwelling place of God with man. In other words, the story of the Bible is now complete. The new covenant is now fulfilled. The desire of God's people is now satisfied because the dwelling place of God is now with man. Fellow Christian, we will be forever uh, his people and he will forever be our God. This is what eternal life is. Jesus, on his high priestly prayer in John 17 verse 3 says this and this is eternal life that they know you the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you sent eternal life then has a high quality of life because it consists of unending uninterrupted and unbreakable communion with God the Father God the Son and God the Holy Spirit We will be blessed forever and be eternally full of joy because we will see God face to face through his son, Jesus. Do you remember all the Psalms in the Old Testament about longing to be in God's presence in the temple? How I long to be a doorkeeper in the temple. I, on the outskirts, doing nothing. Why? 
because that's where God was dwelling with his people at that time. And yet these longings are now satisfied. And if you're a Christian today, you should have these longings to see Jesus, to see God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in heaven through Jesus. And that's what heaven will be. God's eternal dwelling place with his people. Heaven is not an eternity spent floating on a cloud and stringing a harp day after day after day. It's much, much greater. And I trust that these six truths have shown you that. I trust that they have, they have opened your eyes to the glory to the, to, and, and, and have given you a foretaste of what awaits all those who are in Christ Jesus. And yet a second question follows our opening question. And it's, it's a common question. In fact, it's a natural question. And the question is this. How can we be sure about heaven? Alex, it all sounds great. Some of it may be speculation, sanctified speculation with sanctified restraint. But how can we be sure of this? How can I be sure about heaven? And it's as if John himself was about to ask the same question because in verses 5 to 8, God speaks directly to him. And this is only the second time that God the Father directly speaks in the whole of the revelation. First time was chapter 1, verse 8. And now this is the second time. We've heard a lot from the throne. We've we've described a lot in the throne and what's happening around the throne. But this is only the second time that the one seated on the throne speaks In other words, listen to this. And God speaks now to confirm all that John saw and heard. God, in a sense, adds his amen and declares in verse 5 that he is making all things new. God then tells John at the end of verse 5 that these words, i.e. everything that has come before, are trustworthy and true. Then at the start of verse 6, God also reminds John of his eternal character by describing himself using the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. Look at verse 6. God says, it is done. It is finished, i.e. everything that has been described before. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. In other words, since God is eternal, he has already finished what he has started. Can you see what God is doing here? He is reminding John and he is reminding us today that we can be sure about heaven because his words are true and his character can be trusted. Do you see that? God's reminding John and us that we can be sure of heaven because his words are true. And his character can be trusted. God is calling us to exercise faith about the future. Because as we've already noticed in our catechism, faith trusts God's words and relies on God's character. This is why Christians believe, as we've been singing in our, in, in, in our new song, we believe in the hope of heaven. Why? Not because some person claimed to go to heaven, wrote a book about it and came back. Not because we've experienced it but because God has told us in the Bible and we trust the Bible because his words are true and his character is always faithful. And perhaps I'm speaking to someone today, which is very, very common, who is, is doubting 
like Thomas, the Lord's disciple, you're, you're just doubting some of the things of the faith. You're not sure if heaven is really is real. Well, may this encourage you to go back to the word of God and to remind yourself once again that God's words are always true and that his character can always be trusted. Think about your own life. Has he ever failed you yet? No. So he won't fail you next. The big promises and the small promises, they've all come true. Interestingly, in, in, in Revelation chapter 21 here, lots of Old Testament promises are being fulfilled. I don't have time to, uh, to give them there. I don't think that would be really helpful either. But there's so many fulfilled here, reminding constantly to John and to us that God has been faithful to his promise over and over and over again. So therefore, you can be sure and certain about heaven because his words are always true and his character can always be trusted. Well, that brings us uh, thirdly and finally to question number three. Who will inherit heaven? Well, we don't have to guess because God tells us in verses six to eight. At the end of verse six, God promises to, uh, to um, satisfy the thirsty by giving them water from the from the spring of life without payment. This water is the eternal life. It is free because Jesus purchased it for his people when he died on the cross in their place and rose triumphantly from the grave three days later. Eternal life then is given to the spiritually thirsty, those who have realized their, their miserable lost condition, who have confessed their spiritual need and who long for eternal life. In the next verse, God adds another description in the form of another promise. He promises to give them this, this, this inheritance, heaven, and it's promised to the one who conquers. Now, when you're reading the Revelation, and perhaps this encourages you to go home and read Revelation today, when you're reading Revelation, when you hear language of conquering or overcoming, alarm bells should sound in your mind. They should go ding, 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 because all across Revelation, the language of overcoming and conquering is used. Back in chapters 2 and 3, for example, Jesus spoke directly to, to these historical churches in Asia Minor. Churches which faced intense persecution for their faith. And they were exposed to, uh, to really, really dangerous false teaching. And at the end of his message to every individual church... Jesus promises a reward to those who overcome the difficulties, those who persevere in the faith until the end. For example, Jesus said to the church in Smyrna, chapter two, the one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The conquerors then are Christians. And true Christians conquer because the Lamb, Jesus Christ, has conquered already for them. Those who have genuinely repented of their sin, who have trusted Jesus as their only Savior, and who follow him as their Lord until the end, no matter what comes their way, are the conquerors. They are the faithful. They are the people of God. They are true believers. And God declares to them, to his people, that heaven is their home. 
Not because of what they have done, but all because of what Jesus has done for them. The new heaven and the new earth is only for those whose names are in the book of life. This new future is only for those who are united to Christ through faith. And in case we still haven't understood, God puts it negatively in verse 8. He provides a list of people who will not inherit heaven. It's a list of unrepentant sinners whose, 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 whose future is the second death, a place, of, a place of eternal and conscious suffering because they are separated from the love of God. Unlike heaven, there will be weeping and pain in that place. And the sad reality is that this is everyone's future by nature. This is my future by nature. It's your future by nature. And it's still your future today if you haven't believed in Jesus as your Savior. Do not be deceived. Unrepentant, unforgiven sinners will not inherit heaven. We like to put it on our gravestones that they're all in heaven. We like to sing it on our radio shows and our songs. Yet God's word tells us that only Christians inherit heaven because they have believed the Son of God who loved them and gave his life for them. And this means you have a choice to make today. Although you may deny it because you don't like it. You can accuse me of being unloving by saying this. But yet the Bible is absolutely clear that that only true followers of Jesus go to heaven. Therefore, to quote uh, the great American theologian of the 18th century, Jonathan Edwards, let it be considered that if our lives be not a journey to heaven, they will be a journey to hell. Let it be considered that if our lives be not a journey to heaven, they will be a journey to hell. Can I ask you then, as we begin to draw to a close, if you were to die later on today, where would your journey end? When I was a teenager, the same question was asked to me. And God used that question to open my eyes to my sin and to my need of a savior because I knew that if I died at that moment when I heard that question, I would have been in hell, eternally separated from the love of God. And if you were to die tonight, where would your journey end? If it's not heaven, then it can be heaven today. Because the Bible promises that if you simply turn from your sin and if you trust in Jesus as your savior, if you say sorry to God for the sins you've committed against him, sins that currently separate you from him, and if you take hold of Jesus, receive and rest on him as the one who died on the cross for your sins and was raised again three days later so that you could be justified in God's sight, then heaven will be your home. Then you will be saved. John puts it elsewhere, 1 John chapter, um, chapter 5, verse 12, whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. Couldn't be any clearer. To be with Jesus in the next life 
You must belong to Jesus in this life. So choose life today. Choose life today by believing Jesus. By resting in our catechism. Resting and receiving him as your only savior and your only Lord. And if the end of your journey is heaven, as it is for so many of you today, I've heard your testimonies. I can see the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Your destiny is heaven. This is your new future. And it's only because you belong to Jesus. So be encouraged. Be encouraged that this world is not your home. John gave the revelation uh, to you. Sorry, Jesus gave the revelation to John, particularly for this purpose to encourage persecuted believers in Asia Minor to persevere, to press on in the faith. And yes, Revelation may be a totally confusing book, but its number one purpose is that it is a comforting book because it reminds us amidst all the symbols and all the disagreement that God is on his throne, that he is controlling history according to his plan, and one day his perfect plan will be brought to fulfillment. So therefore we press on knowing that whatever comes our way, one day we will dwell in the new heaven and the new earth forever. And brothers and sisters in Christ, this truth changes everything in our lives. It will change our thinking because we will begin to set our minds on on things that are above and not on things that are on the earth. It will even change our approach to material things, to worldly possessions, because we will begin to lay up treasures for ourselves in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. It will change how how we react in trials and in times of testing because we know that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing for the glory that is to be revealed to us. And finally... It will create a longing in our heart to get home to heaven. Or as one of the old hymns says, we will be safe in the arms of Jesus forever. So we pray, come Lord Jesus, come quickly. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we want to thank you for your word. We want to thank you that it encourages our heart, Lord, and for for the truth that it presents to us. And Lord, we want to thank you at the end of this series for giving us us, um, help each and every Sunday to understand the blessings that are ours because we are united to Christ. For my fellow brothers and sisters and for myself, Lord, we pray that you would help us to be encouraged this day that this world is not our home. We are only passing through. And Lord, we pray that by your spirit that would change our lives in every day things. And for those, Lord, who are outside of Jesus today, who are not in Christ, Father, as they have been faced with an eternal question today, open their eyes to, to their sin. Open their eyes to, um, to, to their need for a Savior. And Lord, may they receive that promise to the thirsty. You will grant them water from the spring of the water of life. And Father, as we respond now in song, we pray that our worship um, would close as being um, being perfect and uh, it would bring you glory. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen.